Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is poet and novelist Liz Kay. Our conversation was recorded by Zoom. A founding editor of Spark Wheel Press and the journal Burnt District, Liz Kay holds an MFA from the University of Nebraska, where she was the recipient of both an Academy of American Poets Prize and the Wendy Fort Foundation Prize for exemplary work in poetry. Liz authored the chapbook, Something to Help Me Sleep, and her poems have appeared in such journals as Beloit Poetry Journal, Rhino, Nimrod, Willow Springs, The New York Quarterly, Iron Horse Literary Review, Redactions, and Sugarhouse Review. Liz's debut novel, Monsters, A Love Story, was published in June of 2016. Liz lives in Omaha, Nebraska, with her husband and three sons. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're recording this in April, but we are still enduring uh, a global pandemic. Nonetheless, this is National Poetry Month. I think it's something we can celebrate. And so let's begin with poetry and start with your own beginnings with it. When did poetry first enter your life? Very early. I remember being uh, probably in fifth grade and carrying around, it was a Snoopy notebook, and I would uh, scribble things into it. And I, I remember of a classmate asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a poet. It wasn't the first thing. I was first, I was going to be a chemist but it's, it's the one that stuck. Um, I was a very early reader, um, loved reading, loved making up stories. Um, I loved language and playing with words from a very early age. And then I got serious about creative writing as I think many people do um, when I had a really phenomenal creative writing teacher in high school. And it's just stayed with me ever since. It seems that you're describing a certain love for language and and words and wordplay and i am curious how that manifested itself in those early years you you mentioned um the snoopy journal in fifth grade and then a great creative writing teacher so so what were those first inklings that there was this um love affair with language well it started as a reader i loved um i loved reading stories i especially loved uh books when i was quite young that had rhyme in them. You know, I loved those children's books that were rhyming and playful and Dr. Seuss and um, all of those sorts of, of books. As I got older, I fell in love with um, the romantic poets first. And so probably in high school, I was writing really bad verse. Um, but, you know, I remember um, spending hours memorizing um, the poems of Shelley, just because I, I loved the rhythms of it. I loved the sounds. And, um, and that's, that's kind of where, where it started as a reader and then as someone who would mimic that. But it is, it is sort of weird to be that in love with sounds. Do you remember if there was an epiphany where you realized you had moved from perhaps what you might think of now as just bad poetry playing with language and actually realizing that this now was an art form that you were mastering. 
mastering, I, I have no idea. <laughs> but um, when I when I started really thinking of it as an art was probably also in in that high school English class where I realized that I had to, you know, she did make us write in form. Um, she did make us achieve things, set out to to really practice. Um, and I, I understood that there were there were specific tools that I had to learn to use if I wanted to to be a writer. I like to ask poets if a poem has ever saved them. I don't know if I would say that a, a poem saved me. I would say that poetry saved me. And uh, the poem that opened the door for me, that really blew my world apart, was the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And up to that point, you know, I, again, I loved the romantics. Uh, I loved Shelley. I loved Byron. Um, and I, I always understood what those poems meant. When I had to read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and of course I read it in school, um, I hated it. I hated it so much. I had no idea what it was or what it was trying to say or what it meant. Um, and it went on for pages and pages and it was so irritating. And the next day in the classroom, a peer of mine was asked to read the poem aloud and it transformed. And um, I have had a, a different relationship with, with poetry and with words from that day on. Later on, I want to ask you about your relationship with book clubs. Um, oh, I love book clubs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, it, it's got me curious about the difference between reading and listening. And um, as part of the Omar Public Library Book Challenge, um, and also because we're in a global pandemic, I listened to my first audio book uh, last week. And um, it took me a while. It took me a while to get a grip with it. Um, but it became really quite compelling. And I, I often hear poets and people that teach poetry say that you should speak your poetry out loud if you're really going to get a sense of, is this poem working or not working? Is this something that it sounds as if that was something you learned for yourself that way? And do you practice saying your poetry out loud? I'm going to sound so crazy here. Uh, no, I don't. I don't read my poems out loud. Um, I, and part of that is, um, you know, most of my writing life, I've been a mother and I've had, you know, little people running around. Um, and now I have teenagers and um, they would make fun of me. And uh, so I don't, um, but I have sort of very carefully cultivated the voice in my head. And that voice reads uh, in, a, in a pacing that kind of mimics um, what it would sound like out loud. And I find uh, myself using that voice if I'm, even as a reader, if I'm reading something that I'm not connecting with or that I'm having trouble connecting with or that I find myself skimming through, then I will, I will sort of engage that interior voice um, and be able to hear it. And, and usually that, that cracks something open for me. Is there anything in your poetic life that has been a consistent theme for you? It could be about how you write your poetry. 
It could be the forms in which you write your poetry. It could even be the, um, the subject matter. I'm wondering if, as you look back now, you're seeing those trends. Sure. I think my poems have changed a lot in terms of form. I often write in persona, and so the poems can sound very different. Um, the style is different. Um, I have a, a, a book-length project coming out this summer. It follows a, a single character through, um, through her life. Um, and she changes, her voice changes throughout the, the, the poems. But what has always stayed consistent for me is that I'm almost always talking about gender and the power dynamics in gendered relationships. So I'm not familiar with the full body of your work, but Firewood, the Witch Explains the Nature of Men. Yes. Which is available on your website, so anybody else that's listening can go and, and read that. You mentioned this idea of exploring gender, so that clearly explores uh, different ways that genders uh, encounter the world. Yes. Um, and also, it seems to be written in that a persona that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, yes. Are there any other poems that you've written that perhaps would push that theme or those themes forward? Yeah, all, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all of them. Um, that that is the 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 book length project that um, that is coming out. It's um. It's a retelling of the Hansel and Gretel story from the perspective of the witch. Uh, it's a, she's a character I've been obsessed with since I was very young. And I, I'm very interested in those power dynamics and what it means to try to claim power, um, what kinds of power are available to, um, to women, and how powers that might be considered masculine become monstrous when they're claimed by women. So that that entire collection really explores that. But even earlier poems that I've written, um, some of them had to do um, more with the power dynamics in um, romantic relationships, the power dynamics of motherhood, um, the demands that small people get to, to make and um, how those children end up having a sort of power over you. So all of, all of my work <laughs> is about that. How much of writing poetry and your other creative fiction, how much of that is therefore either cathartic for you and or perhaps a way for you to come to terms with the control and power that you do or do not have? I don't know that it is cathartic. Um, I generally write, uh, when I would write um, autobiographical poems, which I I generally don't do anymore. uh, When I did, I found that I would write them years and years after the fact. So I think I've done most of the processing uh, long before it comes to to the page. So for me, it feels much more like an intellectual exercise. Is that because any creative endeavor, not least writing poetry or creative fiction, demands some vulnerability in giving and an act of courage on the part of the writer. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you lacked any of those things, but you, it sounds as if, you, if that is true, you put a little bit of distance between you and the, you know, the, the circumstance. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think um, you know, I, I often uh, 
tell my my friends that uh, you know I'm very uncomfortable with feelings, um, <laughs> emotions. That's all very. Ugh. Um, that's why I'm a poet, right? I want to create a vessel for it that I can sort of contain it and look at it and hold it up to the light. But it's not. Uh, I'm not feeling them. I'm. Um, I, I get to be in control. So there's that power that comes into. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is a conversation, not a therapy session. Um, <laughs> but do you find, does it give you a sense of um, control, this ability to, um, so, uh, okay. Uh, oh, absolutely. You, you're nodding yeah. your head, but this is, this being an audio <laughs> medium. So yeah, yes. share, share that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's definitely, it's, um, I get to be, I, you know, I'm the God of that universe. Uh, I get to say what happens. I get to control the narrative. Um, I get to, uh, invent the characters. I get to say who can talk and who can't and, um, and whose story we get to tell. Yeah. It's, it's very much a, a an exercise in control power. Yeah. I don't know if this feels like a good time to read a poem or two, but if it does for you, I would love to hear you read. Sure. I would be happy to read. I'm going to read a few poems from the, uh, from the witch uh, collection. I'm very excited about it. It's a, an illustrated collection that'll be coming out this summer titled the witch tells the story and makes it true. The witch awaits the children. Here is the part that we know by heart. Who's that nibbling, nibbling? And the echo of a child's voice carried above the wind. And you, you are holding your breath now. You are willing them to silence. The door opens. It creaks like a warning. This is where we always begin. The witch entices the children. A lump of sugar in the palm of my hand, I crush it with my thumb and the crystals spill out, catch the light like miniature jewels. Open the chest, do you find what you seek? Each pump of the heart is a question, a craving, a refusal to stop wanting. How much sweetness does it take to lure you over the doorstep? I confess you are already beyond rescue, but let us keep the arc of the story. Here is the moment the choice is before you. 
Here are your eager tongues, your sticky fingers. Here is one foot and then another, 20 toes pressed against my floor. The witch explains the problem of gender. I feed the children warm honeyed milk and slices of spice cake. The boy eats so quickly he sickens himself. So like a man can't control his hunger. Sissy weeps and says, I miss my papa. Her tears salt the cake and she cannot eat it. So like a girl can't control her heart. I'm gonna go ahead and read Firewood since you mentioned it. Firewood, the witch explains the nature of men. Mother said I was the best at gathering because I was small and could slip into spaces the sun and rain couldn't reach, where the trees were oldest, beginning to splinter off limbs. I knew it was less about smallness than it was about ease. I'd press only with my fingers until the forest opened to take my body in. I've watched a man force his way, breaking branches and jagged snags, a window torn in the dark heart of the wood. They might have swayed to a lighter touch. Instead, their rough edges caught him at knife point, ripped at his arms, his shirt, his face. This is how a man moves in the world, the friction of him working like a grindstone. He thinks only of what he can wear down. He is always surprised by the blades. And I think I'll be just one more um, that speaks uh, pretty directly to this question of um, gender and power and um, who is allowed to have what kind. The witch imagines a narrative in which the girl saves herself. And what happens to the girl if there is no strong woodsman or if she is not pretty or kind or good what happens to the girl if she is more like the wolf? What has the girl ever been but something to be taken? Do you think she does not know this? Look how the silver light catches the lines of her body. She is a snare set in the forest. She is ready to spring. Thank you for reading, Liz. enjoyed how that set of poems that you chose to read illustrate what you were talking about earlier, this, this idea of inhabiting a different point of view, a different frame of reference, a different character, not least a character that I think we like to demonize as right. well. I did find myself when I read Firewood uh, recognizing entirely uh, my masculine mindset. Is this a reaction that you find you get from readers of your work that they themselves get to see their experience in in either gendered ways or um ways that speak to their power or lack of power do you get a, a familiar response from people i think i do i think i do more with uh with poetry i think um readers of 
poetry are, mm, readers of poetry are maybe um, braver uh, than readers of fiction. I think that um, we often come to poetry prepared to have ourselves challenged, right? Um, we want the poems to explode something about what we have understood to that moment. And um, that's not always true for readers of fiction. So I get more resistance um, from uh, fiction readers sometimes than I do from readers of poetry who are, you know, excited to be challenged, to have their, their views shaken up. But oftentimes, um, and particularly, uh, we'll gender this again, readers of what um, might be called women's fiction are expecting uh, a story that tells them that everything that they believed already was continues to be true. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is poet and novelist Liz Kay. Our conversation was recorded by Zoom. This feels like a good segue into Monsters, a love story. Sure. And um, I was really struck by um, your website has a, a downloadable guide for book clubs that are discussing the book and I, I thought that was wonderful and really well written but I was also struck by this overt request of people to contact you because you you love discussing things with book clubs mm -hmm. uh, so tell me before we talk about the book tell me why uh, you love engaging with book clubs uh, I think it, it has to do with my understanding of um you know, I think reading is as much an art as writing is. I don't think that a work is finished until it has arrived at the reader. So it requires the reader to be complete. And I'm so interested in how, um, how my work is received. Uh, you know, I want the reader's reaction. I want to know what they got out of it. I want to know if they hated it. Uh, I, I kind of love it when they hate it. 
<laughs> not not monsters necessarily, but but anything. And you know, I've had that experience as a reader of poetry, um, reading things and and having the audience just sort of like viscerally unsettled by it, uh, which I think is you know fantastic. I want them to be um, engaged. So you know, for me, probably the worst uh, response is like you know three stars. <laughs> It was a book, um, so I, you know, I want I want the five stars and I want the one stars. I really love the one stars, so uh, I love having those conversations with readers and and um, and also these characters are real to me. They're real people um, that I, you know, I feel like I'm talking about my friends with other friends, you know. So um, it keeps them alive for me. I think that is an act of courage on the part of any artist in any form to accept that their work isn't complete until it has been consumed in some way uh, by an audience, which creates its own challenges. Do you find that process difficult of allowing other people to tell you what they think your novel art form is? And have you been surprised by anything that you've encountered? I don't know that I've ever been surprised. I've been um, bothered, but no, I don't think I've ever been surprised. Um, I, you know, Monsters is, um, Monsters is on the surface, it, it reads very much like a, like a love story. Um, it's funny. There's, um, it's, it has sort of a breezy style to it. So it's very easy to consume in that way. But underneath, it's really an examination of, you know, gender, um, power dynamics, and, um, and specifically rape culture. And so I kind of knew what I was going to hear from readers, um, which is that the protagonist, Stacy, um, she drinks too much. She's, you know, not a good mom. She's so promiscuous. And um, the love interest, Tommy, who is very charming. They love him. He's great. He's such a great dad. You know, his daughter has an eating disorder um, that is clearly exacerbated by his promiscuous lifestyle. And yet they think he's, you know, a great guy because we make a lot of excuses for um, powerful men that we find attractive and we hold women to incredibly impossible standards. So, Stacy spends a lot of the novel really judging herself and then readers do the rest of the work for her. And I, I knew that was kind of the reaction that I was going to get. Sometimes it disappoints me <laughs> how, how much people really um, can beat Stacy up and make those excuses for Tommy. But the, you know, that's the book I wrote. Uh, and um, it's sort of um, the culture that I was critiquing anyway. So it's not a surprise. Did it uh, offend you in some way? You, you talked about it being breezy and humorous, uh, mm-hmm. but it sounds like in some ways that was a Trojan horse to bring in some really pretty serious issues. Um, but did it offend you in some way that I think one or two reviews, for example, suggested, oh, it's a great beach read? <laughs> yeah, I, I did have kind of a hard time with that. I had a hard time with um, being labeled as you know women's fiction or chick lit. And it's not even so much that the that the label bothered me, but that um, that I think sometimes it led uh, it led the book to the wrong readers. 
I want to make sure that we make clear to listeners the connection back to your poetic origins. Mm-hmm. Because a key part, I think, of uh, the story, how, how Stacy and Tommy, these protagonists, encounter each other, is because of a, a rewriting, a sort of an interpretation of Frankenstein. Yes. Rather than me kind of like labor the comparison between what you were reading as a young poet yourself and your interest in the romantic poets and feminism as well, would you help join the dots between this novel the characters, Frankenstein, and, and, and some of your themes. Sure. So um, in the novel, uh, the, the protagonist, Stacy is a poet, and she has written uh, a novel in verse that is a retelling of Frankenstein. It's this feminist retelling of Frankenstein. And I really imagine those, those poems as, you know, being about um, trying to construct the perfect woman. And what is the perfect woman? Well, first of all, she's dead. So, uh, you know, I've always been sort of uh, taken with that um, Victorian, you know, pale, dead Victoria. Oh, it's the Lady of Shalott. Isn't she beautiful? She's so dead. Um, and it, and I, I really wanted to, to consciously play with that idea. And, you know, Stacy understands what's being asked of her. She she understands that she's supposed to be really beautiful and and really thin and not work too hard at it and not be uptight. She's supposed to be very relaxed, but also follow all the rules all the time. Um, And as much as she knows all of these things and is able to interrogate them in her own writing, it doesn't mean that she's free of any of that. So that is the the work of art that's sort of at the core of the novel. And I think also there is something about my own uh, anxieties as an artist um, of letting a piece of work go because the central tension for Stacy is also um, this loss of control over her art. And uh, I, again, got to play with all of these ideas that, that I've been in love with for a long time. I've always loved Frankenstein. I've always loved the romantics. And so I got to play with all of that. But in, like you said, this Trojan horse of, of, of a breezy uh, summer beach read. I, I mean, I think that's marvelous. And I, I, I just think it's fascinating how, um, you know, you've managed to, to weave in some of those own, your own personal inspiration and interests in what I think is potentially a very surprising and provocative way. Um, I read you say somewhere that writing a book-length novel was faster than writing poetry. You expressed falling in love with the pages and, and the characters. And I wonder if you would just expand a little bit on that. And if you'll ever actually, in that context, go back to poetry. I do love writing fiction. I will say that I've worked on other novels since Monsters, and uh, it was not that fast again. It was sort of a sort of a fluke. Um, but I had been writing, and especially the witch poems are incredibly small. They're very spare little poems. I think that full manuscript is less than 6,000 words. Um, and it's, you know, uh, 60 poems. So I, you know, here I'm working with white space and I'm thinking about every single um, word and the placement on the page. 
And so to suddenly have just this like vast, expansive um, text to work with, right? I have so much space. Um, it was incredibly liberating. And I had also never written dialogue. And so this was a new, you know, game to play. Uh, and um, so I found it really intoxicating. I, um, I did write Monsters very quickly in about six weeks. I just never wanted to be away from it. Um, I still write, or at least I wrote Monsters much the same way that I write poems. I write it until it's done. Um, so I just never was away from it. I would, um, I was writing it constantly, 24 hours a day. Um, I would, I would dream about it and then it would wake me up and I'd go back to writing. I will say that, uh, I was pulled towards fiction pretty, pretty drastically after that. Uh, I also really like, um, I like book length projects. I don't like to um, come up with ideas. <laughs> I don't like to start. I don't like the, the blank page. Um, so I have been writing book length projects, even in poetry for you know a few years now. And um, I like to take on a project and something that's gonna keep me busy for a long time. That feels like a segue to talk about Burnt District and Sparkwheel Press, which in their own way, I think, are significant projects and also a forum or a place or a venue for projects, uh, other people's projects to come to life. Yes. Um, and that's me trying not to stretch the Frankenstein metaphor any further. Um, so I'll edit that bit out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't. Um, Maybe we should just start with the origin story first for how you and a uh, collaborator, Jan Lambert, how the uh, birth of Burnt District and then Sparkwell Press, how they came about. Um, Burnt District was, uh, as many of these projects are, incredibly impulsive. Uh, we just thought, uh, wouldn't it be fun? Wouldn't we love to do that? Uh, you know, we were right out of graduate school we were working on getting our own poems published in journals we were reading journals constantly um going to awp uh which may never happen again uh you know the, visiting the book fair and 
talking to editors and just, we just wanted to be a part of that world. And we wanted to make sure that we were connected to the literary world as we were moving away from graduate school. So how could we, you know, get ourselves, you know, uh, tethered to it? So we, we started Burnt District quite impulsively. We, we made the decision. Uh, we kind of talked about it for a couple of days. And, uh, and I think we were throwing around names. We said, well, what if we did? If we did have a journal, what would we call it? And we were throwing around some names. And when we came to Burnt District, we had set up the website by the next day um, and started taking submissions. We got into Burnt District pretty impulsively. We loved it. Uh, it was originally a print journal. We did eventually take it to an online format. And um, we got to read these amazing poems. Um, Spark Wheel came about because as we were reading these great poems, we found that we were falling in love with sets of poems. Um, so we would get a batch of five poems and we would want three of them. And we'd notice that, um, that they were connected and that they were clearly part of a larger project. You know, I love projects. And those are the books that I'm drawn to as a reader too, um, rather than the, you know, collected works. I want like something that's, that's been conceived as a, as a whole project. And um, so we would read these persona poems and these poems that were working in series and we got very excited about it. And we wanted to read the, the books that those series were a part of. And so we started um, Sparkwheel Press publishing single author collections and we've now published um five books we're we're pretty slow <laughs> um jen uh left the press uh, a few years ago i do have a um an associate editor who works with me her name is tori smith she's just been fantastic we have put out some some really uh, amazing books that we're really proud of. Our our latest collection is to keep from undressing, by a poet named Aisha Sharif, and it's just uh, it's a stunning collection, and um, we're we're just so proud of it. I feel like the literary journal domain, the whole field, is cannot be immune from the same kinds of pressures that other print businesses are facing in terms of audience size, interest, this idea that all media should just be free um, and easily accessible? I would absolutely not recommend it. We spent a lot of money <laughs> um, and uh, printed these beautiful journals. And I, I think they, they built a really lovely community of poets and I feel very connected to the poets that we've been able to publish. We ended up going online because um, we were able to get a broader readership for our for our poets. Um, you know, you don't sell that many copies of a print journal, but when you get a great poem uh, and you can link to it, and um, you know, we would see you know 500 hits on the first day, and that was a lot more views than they were getting in in the print format. Um, that said, you know, Burnt District has been on hiatus for, you know, over a year at this point. We keep wanting to get to it, but it's, um, it's more work than the press. And, um, you know, I think if we're going to 
put that much time into something, I really like the idea of championing an author's book. If for nothing else, then the fact that we can pay that author royalties. Um, we can't really pay our, our contributors in the journal anything, and um, we don't make any money for the journal. Uh, so it's just an expense and a lot of work. And I don't know that we're able to really even benefit our, our poets as much. So it's, it's sort of fallen to the, we would love to get back to that someday, but I, I don't know when we can start to prioritize it again. What sort of perspective do you have on um, what you are seeing now in the world of literary journals and what you think, uh, what might be their future and what that might be configured like? I think that I love print journals. I can't imagine them having much more than a very niche readership. I don't know that that's a bad thing. I, I think there's some really exciting handmade journals, um, some DIY kind of stuff happening um, that's probably re-energizing the art. I think that uh, journals are maybe more important as um, a workspace for poets <laughs> uh, to, uh, to hone their craft than they are as a vehicle um, to get that work to readers. You've mentioned just a second ago how important it was for you to develop a community, this sense of rapport, connection, um, something beyond just a submission, acceptance, and publication with your readers, with your poets and, and authors. So I'm, I'm curious about how that was more important to you, has become more important to you than, than the act necessarily of publishing a, a journal. I think I've always seen journals almost as like a, a they're a community space for poets, right? Um, most of the readers are other poets, whether they're in that issue or not. You know, it's going to be other poets who are who are reading those journals. And, um, and I've always tried to connect with uh, poets that I've published with in, in other journals. One of my sort of dearest poetry friends is um, the poet Francesca Bell. And uh, we were just in an issue of Willow Springs together, maybe seven years ago. And um, I loved her poem so much um, that I emailed her. And we've been in contact ever since. We've published her at Burnt District. Um, when I was on book tour with Monsters, I stayed in her home. <laughs> uh, when she was on book tour with her um, newest collection, she stayed in my home. So it's, it's, um, it's just a way to um, make the world a little bit um, smaller, more manageable. We poets and writers are, are spread all across the country, but it feels like a very intimate community. And I think that's mostly because of magazines, the journals, the editors um, creating that, that space. And I think that as long as they're doing that work, um, they're doing all the work that they need to do, whether they have a huge readership or not. You seem really creatively driven. Um, you seem both ambitious, but also tenacious. And you seem grounded in this, in your own direction around making the world a better place around certain themes that we've been talking about. I want to maybe just unearth a little bit. Where, where did that come from? So I don't know if it came from experiences in your childhood or how you've grown up, but how you encountered the world mm -hmm. and how you were shaped um, I assume has informed some of this drive within you. So what was your upbringing like and, and how do you think you were influenced? 
Well, my upbringing was a little bit strange um, in that uh, my father, uh, my father was actually uh, a high school English teacher for a short stretch of time before he went back into the army. Um, so my father is um, a retired army officer, um, an expert in nuclear security. <laughs> and I spent most of my childhood growing up on military bases around the world, very conscious from a very young age about what was happening politically in the world and, um, and America's place in it. My earliest memories are um, very tied to um, the hostage crisis. I was quite young, but we were living in Europe at the time and um, sort of that, that just informed my childhood. I grew up in kind of the shadow of the Cold War with a father in nuclear security and again, often living in Europe. Um, and my mother was um, this very driven, very intelligent woman who was living also a very 1950s housewife experience. You know, she actually had a book that said, what gloves you were supposed to wear on what kinds of occasions and um, you know, all of these instructions about how to be an officer's wife. Um, so those very gendered expectations entered my life at a very early age. And, and I was lucky enough to have two parents who were both deeply feminist and very progressive and talked about that in our home. So I think, um, I have been chafing at those expectations since I was a child. Would you mind closing us out with another poem? Sure, I would love to. Let me pull one up for you. I will read you um, the final poem in this collection um, of the witch. It's the only poem uh, written in anyone else's voice. It's called Gretel Introduces Herself. Everyone wants to know about what came after, if we found the witch's treasure and took it home. Can you see there was no home but hers willing to keep us? In that future, his place was a gallows, and mine was a stake or a press or a pit or a lake. My hands have touched her body, they carry her scent, and my brother, stuffing his pockets with pearls and stones. Some habits are hard to break. Others break like bones. Liz, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful way to spend the afternoon. That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. 
Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Lives Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.